Chapter 3, big 3, verse 5, the little 5, says this. What then is Apollos? Apollos was another teacher that had come after Paul had left to help lead the church. So another teacher, and and Apollos is on Paul's team. Paul is pro-Apollos. But he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Talking about himself. They are servants through whom you believed, and each has his role that the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Again, we talked about that last week. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He's the only one who's someone. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward, or the Greek word there could be translated wages, his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. We, you, are God's field. You are God's building, he says. He's going to use these two analogies side by side. Verse 10. According to God's grace that has been given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder. And another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid. The foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. When? For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that has been built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss. But he himself will still be saved, but only as through fire. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple, And that the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. Now I've got to do something just to start here. I've got to admit, I misspoke last week. I misspoke. If you were here, do you know where I misspoke? I read to you... Chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, you are God's temple. Now, in further study this week, the you are is how my friends in the South would say, y'all are God's temple. It's the plural. Now, I did not say anything erroneous because later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul will say, your body, and he's speaking individually, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that theology is true. So what I said about it last week is true, but this isn't the place to go. And that's so important for this week. Because what Paul is actually saying is, you all, when you gather together, you are the temple of God. The local church becomes temples of the living God all over the world. Important to start there. Now, let me uh, say something interesting to start. The title of this sermon, if you're taking notes, is this. Only time will tell. Only time will tell. You heard that saying? Only time will tell. And, friends, time will tell. It's not like maybe time will tell, but only time will tell. Tell you what? Tell you if the work you do, the things you build into, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time will survive into eternity or will end with this life and this world. Only time will tell. Now, how many of you are native Seattleites? Raise your hand. Been here most of your life. Okay, how many of you have been on the underground tour in Seattle? Okay, so you know a little bit about the Seattle fire of 1889. For those of you who are neither from Seattle, don't just move to a new city and study all the history or haven't been on the underground tour. Let me tell you about the the fire of 1889. Now, Seattle was a booming uh, city, um, not so much, but it was a growing city, and it grew fast. It grew fast. 
uh, in part, getting ready for, you know, the gold rush to Alaska, and so it grew fast, and so what do you do when you're building a city fast, and you live in a place, like, you don't have to look around, what's the commodity we have? We have wood, lots of wood, wood was cheap, wood is easy to build with, fast to build with, so they built downtown, think Pioneer Square, they built all of, like, that downtown business area, all the buildings were built out of wood. Guess what else was built out of wood? The sidewalks were built out of wood. I don't even know how you build wood sidewalks. It's very Western, I guess, old school. And guess what? Not only the buildings, not only the sidewalks, but also guess what else was built out of wood? The plumbing. The pipes of the city were built out of wood. Now, there was, there was a, a craftsman who was uh, working with some hot glue uh, down in that area, and Something happened, and uh, his hot glue tipped over, and uh, he also had a, a lot of other flammable uh, materials in his workshop, and his workshop basically exploded, starting the great Seattle fire. Now, because the pipes were made of wood, and the sidewalks were made of wood, and the houses were made of wood, the firefighters of Seattle could not stop the fire. And when all said and done, 30 city blocks had been destroyed by the Great Fire of 1889. And only time would tell. <laughs> all that work, all that construction, it was replaced. The reason there's an underground tour is, again, a bit hasty, or I'm not exactly sure. They're like, this would be a lot of work to clean up. Let's just go ahead and build a new city on top of <laughs> the ruins, okay? So they just so you can still walk down and see where the old... It's a pretty cool uh, history lesson in Seattle if you, if you want to do that. But um, fire swept through, and uh, the things that are lasting and the things that are temporary, it was shown very quickly. Paul's saying something quite similar. So let's look closer at the passage. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? We are servants, he says. Servants for what? Servants for what? Well, the God's servants... And God's servants are called to do the work of disciple-making. God's servants aren't primarily just called to start churches. Churches make disciples. That's what churches do. That's what a good church does. Uh, Christians or, or disciples then do all sorts of other stuff. But the primary work of the local church is to build up, Um, invest in people that they might become disciples of Jesus, which is to mean followers of Jesus. With what part of their life? Every part of their life. So so Paul is saying, we are servants. Our job is to come and, and, and gather people together to learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, to move in the peculiar wisdom of Jesus. That's what God called us to do. And Paul said, I came in and I started this church, I planted this church, and then Apollos, he came in after me. In fact, he, Paul probably brought Apollos in, and he continued to build you up into disciples. So that's what Paul and Apostle were called to do. They were servants of God, doing God's work of disciple-making. Now, in the immediate context of this letter, Paul is primarily talking about all the other teachers that have come after Apollos and after Paul, And come into Corinth and continue the work of disciple making. And Paul's not happy with what they've done, the work that they've done. He believes that they have forgotten the true gospel. They begin to preach another gospel. That they've preached liberties for the people of God that look more like the culture than like the God of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ of the New Testament. And so they're unhappy with the teachers that have come. But what I don't want you to to lose here is to think, okay, this is just about teachers of God. This is just about Dave and Ryan and others who have the responsibility of sort of leadership in the church. It definitely includes us, and so you should apply this to us. Are we conducting work that will last forever, or are we conducting temporary work? But I want you to not only do that, I want you to own this for yourself, Because what the New Testament makes very clear, what Paul makes very clear, is that while there are people who are set apart in the church to do like what I'm doing now, sort of the teaching on a Sunday, every single disciple of Jesus 
is a servant of God called to do the work of disciple-making. It isn't like there's a few professional disciple-makers and the rest are just um, observers. That is not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches that we are all called to the same work of Paul and Apollos, to make disciples of Jesus, to help people figure out what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? How do I follow Jesus? How do I move in step with the peculiar wisdom of Jesus? Each and every one of you who considers yourself to be a Christian, which is synonymous with a disciple of Jesus, is called to the work of disciple-making. So I want you to, to ask these questions not only of us, not only of other churches maybe that you've been a part of or you're considering being a part of, but also of yourselves. Now, what if you're not yet a disciple of Jesus? What if you're not yet a Christian? This is what I want you to, to listen. Well, first I want you to ask, do I want to be a disciple of Jesus? And if you do want to be, tell somebody and, and ask them, I need your help learning what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But maybe you're not there yet. That's okay. We love that you're here learning about Jesus, learning about what he calls his people to, his servants to. So I want you to ask this of the people that you know, maybe that brought you to church this week. I want you to be super critical of them. <laughs> you thought you remember to heard that. I want you to critique them so hard that they can't, they can't leave uh, lunch after you guys go out to church after lunch. Uh, I, I want them to feel like, oh man, I'm letting you down. <laughs> because, I, because their job is to help you know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So you hear this, and, and if they are not helping, I want you to tell them. That's your job today. That's your job. So I may get a little bit rough on, on the Christians in the room. That, but I'm not being rough on you, okay? Your job is, especially if you want to know what it means, help me. You're doing a terrible job. <laughs> you could do better. It's okay to say that. Paul would say, it's okay to say that. Jesus would say, definitely, you should say that. Okay, so you ready? So in Corinth, there were some teachers. And they weren't particularly on point or in step with what the Apostle Paul had taught. We learn later from the second letter, that second Corinthians that Paul wrote, that they called themselves the super apostles. You called, called them the celebrity apostles. Those that uh, they thought they knew a little bit more. They thought, well, you have sort of uh, the beta version in Paul, and I'm going to give you a full release. This is, this is really it. And Paul's like, listen, be careful. Those guys are teaching a different message. And Paul's going to use these two analogies. First, he uses um, a farming analogy which we talked a lot about last week. So I won't spend a lot of time. But he sort of, you know, you can think of it like this. Like he's talking to sort of the folks that live outside of town and own farms and kind of understand that. And he's going to talk about those who are living in the city, building houses. He just wants to make sure everybody knows <laughs> what's going on here. And so he says, I came in, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. God gives the growth. And um, that's so true. That's so true. Any growth that's not coming from God will not be growth that lasts. It is artificial growth. And only time will tell whether that growth is real or whether that growth is artificial. Sometimes, particularly in the American church, you look at somebody and you say, Wow, look at all that fruit. Look at all that growth. Look at all those people. And even the people that are inside the church feel, oh my goodness, I am growing a ton. But in time, you realize that that growth was more about sort of um, motivational speaking or practical life tips that is more geared and uh, based upon the wisdom of the world rather than the peculiar wisdom of Christ. This happens all the time. So there's like a temporary growth. People do get their lives back in order. Maybe even they overcome addiction. Um, they start, but, they, but they're being fed something that is giving only momentary or temporary growth. And only time will tell if that thing gives them lasting life. When crisis hits, does it all fall apart? Or is it strong enough? Is it real enough? Is it solid enough to last? You don't have to like look far, like just look around Netflix. You'll find documentary after documentary about churches that are like this. 
And in more subtle ways, or less, I guess, documentary-worthy ways, <laughs> this is happening all the time. Is the work of the teacher or the person who's individually discipling you based upon the lasting, eternal Word of God? Or is it based on a trend, a fad, a popular figure, a charismatic leader? What is it? So, God gives the growth. If it's anything else, eventually that growth will be shown for what it is. The second analogy is the building analogy. Um, as I said, I got the uh, temple. You are the God's temple. I got that wrong, the wrong quotation. That's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. That's where you'll find the individual is the temple. But together, collectively, we are the temple, which will give uh, legs when you just read what Paul's about to say in light of he's talking about the temple. Okay? So what does he say about the temple? Now, before I read these passages and we break them down, you got to try to put yourself back into the place of the Corinthians, okay? Because one of the things that's, that's unique about Greece, if you've ever visited Greece, um, or at least you've heard of it, studied it in school, they had great what? Temples. To all sorts of gods. You obviously have sort of the Acropolis in Athens, right? Uh, which is the temple to Athena, which is this magnificent uh, temple up on the hill, right? So I call it the Acropolis, on the hill. Now in Corinth, they also had a similar thing. They had the Acro-Corinth, which was quite a, quite a hike up the hill. And at the top of the hill, there was this uh, temple to Aphrodite. Now, which god or which Greek god is Aphrodite? Think of Aphrodisiac. Aphrodite is the god of love. And one of the things, and this will become more important as we go in the book, um, uh, at this temple, which is quite a hike, and people would come from all over the world, sailors would come into this because it was a port city, they'd make the trek up to the top of this um, Acro-Corinth, this big hill right behind the city, and um, there was um, up hundreds probably of temple prostitutes, and people would go, and a part of the worship of um, Aphrodite would be participating in these sexual uh, worship practices. So this is sort of the context. When Paul brings up the building of a temple, he's definitely talking about the temple in Jerusalem, that we are the new temple, but he's also telling our city has all these temples. There's been all these temples erected, and God's wanting to erect a new temple, and you are that temple, okay? So that's what I want you to hear when you hear these words. So let's, let's, let's read it. Verse 10. So you are God's field, you are God's building. Then he goes into the building analogy. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder. And another builds on it. But each one is to what? Be very careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay another foundation that has not been laid down. That foundation is what? Jesus Christ. So the foundation of the temple. So we're building a new temple. What is the foundation? The foundation is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God the Son, who came into human history, put on flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, lived the perfect life that we could not live, proved that he was from God through many signs and miracles, went to the cross, and he says that he absorbed the wrath of God, which is the penalty due for sin, our sin, because he had no sin. He became sin for us so that what we might become, what? The righteousness of God. Through the resurrection, he proved that God received his payment, that it was complete, that you now can become the righteousness of God by also experiencing a resurrection like his. What does it mean to be the righteousness of God? It means to be worthy, to be part of the building blocks of the temple of God. So the foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said this. Turn back with me to chapter 1, verse 23. Paul has already said this. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, or to the Greeks. A stumbling block. Now this word stumbling block, 
is actually the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in many places that talked about what? The foundation of the temple. So Paul is saying the same thing. He's like, listen, I understand that the foundation, which is Jesus Christ and the gospel of the cross, is a stumbling block to many. Jews struggle to believe it. How could a Messiah, we've talked about this before, how could our Messiah be hung from a tree? The Greeks think, well, we worship power and strength and and not humility in a servant who died. So it becomes something they trip over, a trap for them. But Paul's saying, listen, you can't change the foundation. The foundation is the foundation. Even if, it stu- if some stumble over, you cannot change that. And the foundation language is so important. So in verse 23, he says, we preach Christ crucified, the foundation that becomes a stumbling block. And in this, in this verse here, he says, we lay the foundation. So there is, in Paul's mind, a connection between preaching and laying the foundation. How should any new church lay the foundation of Christ? They preach the good news of Jesus, the gospel of what he's done. That's the way to lay the foundation. So whether it's the seed in the field, that's the preaching of the gospel, or it's um, sort of the mixing of the cement that needs to get mixed up, how do you do do that? Well, you add the living water of the Holy Spirit to that cement mix, and then you grind it up with the preaching of the gospel, and then you lay it as the foundation of the church. I pray to God that we've done that at Sedaris, that you are so clear that the foundation here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So one of our classes is the gospel class. We want you to know what we mean when we say the gospel. It's the full gospel. It's a gospel of you are a sinner in need of God's grace, but he has given you his grace in his son Jesus. It's both an honesty with ourselves and it's a celebration of God and his love. Both are so important to the foundation of the gospel. At Sedaris, we preach the historic, apostolic, Pauline, Petrine, that's Peter, all the apostles, the gospel they preach. We don't preach some new gospel that we came up with just because we think it sounds nice or that people might not stumble over. People will stumble over the gospel. It's the foundation, okay? It's unchanging from the time of Paul preached it to now. So you got to get the foundation right if you're going to build a temple of God in any city, in any place, any time. So foundation is Jesus, which means it's not cultural consensus, it's not human goodness, it's not political opinions or plans, it's not denominational distinctives, it's definitely not money. None of these things are the foundation. The foundation is the gospel alone, which is so great to know, which means it can be, like temples of God can be built anywhere in this world, not just places with lots of money or places with a certain cultural bent or even places where humans aren't so good. It can be started anywhere. So, we've got the foundation. Where do we go from there? Where do we go from the foundation? Let's, let's, let's read this next part. Verse 10. What does he say? But each one of you, or each one, each teacher, but I'd say each one of you, should be careful how he builds on it. Now, the word careful here, this is... This sort of is uh, underwhelming. Uh, you, should, you should be careful. No, actually, it's, uh, in the Greek, it's the imperative. It's more like saying, watch out. Each of you should watch out how he builds upon the foundation, which is Christ Jesus. Be very careful. Be very careful what you build, but also be very careful what you receive. It can be so difficult to know what's true and what's not true. So I'm a little bit harder on like teachers and and pastors and things because they should know better because their job is to like study this. It's harder for the average person who's working a full-time job, even people around the world who might not even be literate to read the Bible for themselves. Like it's upon the teachers, but be careful even what kind of church you're a part of because Paul's about to say not not, not everything is going to last. Not everything is uh, worth your time. I was, I'm reminded of this. There's uh, an, uh, a new show out that, that documents the life of uh, Anna Delvey. At least that's what she called herself for a while. She was a New York uh, socialite that had convinced 
Wall Street bankers, the elite of New York, uh, that she was a German heiress. And she went around and um, basically conned a lot of people out of money. She was staying at the fanciest hotels, both in New York and and abroad. Um, And she would just sort of, she would present to be the real deal so nobody would question. And so she'd put a credit card down and anyhow, never paid her bills. Quite an interesting story. Some of you may know about it. There's a Netflix show about it right now. And um, the point being, it doesn't matter how smart you are, how in the know you are, anybody and everybody can be duped. So watch out. So be careful, Paul says. Both how you build into the discipleship of someone's life, but also who you let disciple you. Take full care in the building up of the local church in your own uh, growth into a disciple of Jesus. Don't change the foundation. Be careful of anybody that tries to put a new foundation on top of the old foundation. And then build with the right kind of material. So what does he say? He says this, verse 12. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. It will become obvious. For the day will disclose it. And probably, in other translations, you'll see this day is capitalized. Because there's coming a day where God will expose all things. It will become obvious. And so, be careful what you build with. So let's look at these building materials. It's not so much that each of these materials has some sort of allegorical spiritual meaning behind them, like gold is one type of thing and silver is another. But Paul is putting these into two categories that are kind of obvious. Like, if you build with gold, silver, or precious stone, when fire sweeps through the city, your building will stay standing. If you build with perishable building materials, wood, hay, straw, these are very flammable, when fire sweeps through the city, yours will not last. I think that's the end of the sort of spiritualization of these materials, but it is clear that there are two types of materials. Now, uh, one scholar, Joseph A. Fitzmaier, says this, Paul is referring to subsequent preaching of the gospel, which may be of fine quality, that's based upon the gospel itself, or of very poor quality, such as stories and anecdotes and human wisdom. And that, in time, he says, that difference would become apparent, end quote. So when I saw that quote, I was like, this is so true. Is the teaching you're getting or the teaching you're giving, is it based on anecdotes, fun stories, humor, or is it based on the gospel itself? Is it in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ? Or is it primarily human wisdom puffed up with biblical language inserted with great stories of humor and illustrations that really stick. What is it? Now, whether or not Paul only had in mind preaching, we can't be sure. But I think a quick look at at, at 3.16 shows us something important. So back to 3.16, it says, Don't you you yourselves know that you are God's temple, and that the Spirit of God lives in you. So when he's talking about these materials that you build the temple with, you you go over to verse 16 and you're like, wait a minute, he's saying we are the materials. So what is it? Are you building with gold or silver, or are you building with people? And I think Paul's saying both. He's saying You become the gold. You become the silver. You become the precious stone that God will then use to build his temple. So you might say it like this. That the building elements that Paul's thinking of, whether that's preaching or teaching uh, or one-on-one counseling and coaching um, or modeling what service in the Lord looks like, all of those sort of um, uh, elements or activities of building are ultimately, if they are to last forever, are things that are turning the people of God into the gold, silver, 
or precious stone. Which is to say, they are no longer wood, straw, or hay. They are now changing. They're becoming something utterly different. They are no longer mere humans, as we said last week, but they're gold, silver, and precious stones. Available and able to be a part of God's temple. What an amazing promise. Or you could say it this way. Is your disciple-making efforts, and remember, God brings the growth, right? So don't take the credit. God brings the growth. But are your disciple-making efforts, whether that be teaching, preaching, counseling, modeling for another younger disciple, showing tangible, all those things I said, are those efforts leading to more solid spiritual beings or not? Because solid, real disciples of Jesus Christ are, Paul says, the temple. It's very fascinating. Very fascinating. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's uh, Great Divorce, which is an allegory of um, the difference between the heavenly realm and he calls the gray city, or the place that's far from God, one of the really unique things is, uh, anyhow, people from the gray city take a bus that sort of flies into the sky up to this, the foothills of the heavenlies, and, and they step on the grass, and it hurts their feet so bad. <laughs> they're like, ow, ow. They're stepping on this grass, and they're like, it looks beautiful, but it hurts. And the way C.S. Lewis talks about it, he's like, yeah, it's more real than any grass they've ever felt. And if they're not ready for that more real grass, they're going to be very uncomfortable in the place of God because it's more real than anything they've ever experienced. So are your efforts, by God's grace, by his power and his spirit, he makes the growth, but are your efforts leading towards people becoming more solid, more like gold, more like silver, more like precious stones that are made for the kingdom of God? I think that's what Paul's getting at. So, be very careful, he says. Be very careful. So, why so careful? Why does it matter? Why does it matter to become available to be building materials? Let's look at the next part. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work has been, that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss. But he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So what is this day? Again and again, in the Old and the New Testament, whenever the day is referred to, it's pointing to the day when God comes back, when the Messiah returns, and he will judge the world and restore the world. And he will judge and restore the world, the Bible's seems to say, through fire. And then when you study God, it, it's so often, whether it's the burning bush with Moses um, or the tongues of fire that come at Pentecost on the heads of all the disciples as they speak in other languages, um, God is always represented with fire. So the fire he's talking about here is not sort of the fire of damnation. He's talking about the refining fire, which is God's presence. And so when Christ returns on the day, We've studied this in the past, and he sits on the Bema seat, which we'll see in 1 Corinthians, and it says he'll judge all people, the living and the dead. All people that have died will be risen to life, and everyone will stand before. Some will stand before God, and, and their works will be uh, revealed, and they'll say, You're, you are um, a child of God, and you live with God forever. Then others will be, by their own choice, uh, live uh, separated from God. So that's what the Bible teaches on the day when Christ returns. So right now Paul is zooming way out. Historically speaking, he's got a long time horizon. He's saying only time will tell, and I don't know how long it's going to take, but time will tell what is actually made of these, these solid, precious stones and will survive, and, and what effort and work will perish. Okay? And it will be fire. Now, very quick, just in case you grew up in a, in a Catholic context, which I know some of you have, this verse has often been used to prove uh, the doctrine of purgatory, 
which is that when you die, depending on how much good work you've done, you'll spend a certain amount of time sort of in a, a, a kind of a fiery place um, as you sort of work your way into the full acceptance into heaven. Let me just tell you, that's not what this verse is talking about, right? Because clearly what Paul is talking about is not the fire of some sort of a punishment, but he's talking about the fire, the refining fire of God's present presence. So um, I just want to make that note because I, I know some people come out of a Catholic background, they maybe heard this taught in this way. So the rewards and the loss that Paul's talking about here aren't related at all to purgatory. So on the day, some will have a reward and some will have loss. So let's look at this reward. What is this reward? It says, you will receive this reward if what you have built survives. What you have built survives. Now this is so interesting. This word here, or this idea of this reward, um, it might feel weird to us. Because it's like, I, I don't, I'm not doing the things that I do to get a reward. Should you do the things you do to get a reward? The answer is, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Is it wrong to want a reward? To want God to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? It's not wrong to want that. So what reward is he talking about? Well, this is a reward that is, I think, imperishable. Meaning, it will last forever. So later in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 9, you'll hear the famous analogy of running a marathon, right? And it says everybody runs a marathon, uh, and, e- and even people that run just human marathons, actual running, uh, they work hard and they discipline their bodies so that they might receive a reward. And he's saying in the spiritual sense, there are rewards that far outweigh sort of the crown or the wreath crown that the Greek, the Greek games would give, the Olympics, um, he's saying there's an even greater crown, and, and he calls it the imperishable crown. Again, this idea of a prize, that it does matter how you live this life, that there are rewards attached to the kind of work you participate in, the way you use the money God's given you. And Jesus talked about this all the time. But it feels weird to us to think about reward. So what is the reward? Now, This really interesting, I'm going to just take a moment to jam on this. There's this really interesting parable that Jesus teaches, and we don't have time to go read it all, but uh, there's there's a verse, I think, Ryan, you could throw it up here. Luke 16, 9. Jesus concludes this parable this way. He says this, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. This is so strange. Especially if you know the parable. It's sometimes called the parable of the dishonest manager. Others, I think, rightly call it the parable of the shrewd manager. Jesus used to tell these stories that everyone's like, what is he talking about? This one's like one where I'm like, what was he talking about? Basically, the story goes like this. Jesus says, there was a business manager who managed all the affairs of a very wealthy landowner. And this landowner had land all over the place. And so the manager's job was to go and to collect taxes and, and rental payments and all this stuff. And the manager's actually been doing a terrible job. The master suddenly returns unexpectedly. Only time will tell when the master will return. And the master comes back and, and says, show me the book of accounts. And it showed that all of these people are delinquent on their payments. And so the, man, the, or the, the owner says, you're going to lose your job. <laughs> like you're not good at what you do. And so you have two weeks and then you're fired. Um, And so the manager says, oh my goodness, what am I going to do when I don't have a job? I haven't saved any money myself because I'm actually really bad at this. And and I'm going to be kind of out on my luck. And so he goes around, the manager, to all of the people. He says, how much do you owe my master? And um, the people say, I I owe $100. And he says, okay, how much do you have with you now? And he's like, we only have $10. like, okay, great. Give me the $10. We're, We're good. We settle the account. So he goes around to all the accounts and he lets, he basically forgives everyone's debt because he knows he's about to be fired, and then he comes back to his manager, and, and, and on his last day, he says, okay, give me the books, and the manager look, or the, the owner looks and says, wow, all these, all, <laughs> what did you do? Why are all these accounts now balanced? He's like, well, he tells him what he did, and the, and the owner, instead of getting mad, says, very shrewd, <laughs> and then he says this, and then he says this, smart. You used worldly wealth in your position to make eternal friends so that they might welcome you into their eternal dwellings. This is what I think Jesus 
is pointing at. He's saying, listen, you can be shrewd in this life and make lots of friends for yourself in this life, but eventually we all lose our job. It all runs out. Or you could use this life to invest in eternal relationships, eternal people, solid people, building up people, disciple-making, making people know what is important and how to move in step so that in my kingdom, where everyone will have their own dwelling, when you walk down the street, many people will say to you, Hey, Dave, come on over for dinner. Hey, Dave, I can't believe it. Great to see you. Come on over for a glass of wine. Whatever it is. I think that's what Jesus pointed to. Like, listen, you can make friends for yourself in this life, but be like the shrewd manager. Store up your friendships for heaven. And I think that's what the reward is. What's the reward? The reward for those of us who invest now in making true disciples of Jesus is that we'll have an eternity to celebrate the joy of those friendships. Dinner's at Gregor's house. Hanging out with Phil by the fire. What an amazing reward. Maybe there's other things. I don't know. That's good enough for me. I love to think about eternity, walking around town, being like, hey, remember when we met in Seattle? That was a crazy town. That's going to be so fun. That's enough reward for me to say, I'm in, I'm all in. I want my work to be work that survives the refining fire of God's presence so that I might have and be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Very cool. So are there any present rewards? It's a great question. I think yes. I think the reward now, for me at least, is the master's pleasure. God's pleasure to know that I'm doing his work. The, the reward of him having confidence in me to give me more responsibility? Like, how great is that that the God of the universe gives you more responsibility? You make a disciple of one, and God says, here's another, and here's another. I mean, that's a reward for me, to know that God trusts me, that God trusts me. So how do you know if you're sort of building up and doing the work that's going to uh, last forever? One way you might know that is, does God keep giving you more responsibility? Jesus has a lot of parables about that. If you do well with the little I give you, I'll give you more. How pleasing is to know that God thinks I'm doing good work to give me more responsibility. If he doesn't seem to be giving you more responsibility, perhaps maybe the work you're, maybe you're not doing any work, or maybe the work you're doing doesn't last forever. Just think about it. Is God giving you meaningful relationships so that you might disciple others. That might be a sign that he is pleased with you. That's a great reward, and the rewards grow from there. So what's the loss? Well, the loss is interesting. He says, if, if the refining fire comes on the day and it doesn't survive, actually, you'll experience loss. He'll say, he says, your work is in vain. It won't last it won't last. You'll realize all that effort, all that time, all your money, you put it into things that don't last. That's loss. That's that feeling of, it was all in vain. But then he says something so important, and I just want to make this very clear. He says, but, but, he says, that person, he will be saved. This is so important to understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches. Paul is not teaching here that based on your work, you may be saved. If you don't do a good job, you won't be saved. No, he's saying both parties here in his analogy, both builders, they are saved. They are saved if their foundation is in Jesus Christ. He's saying even the person whose entire life work, who builds, disciples people, and and builds churches and, and whatever... If it all gets taken away in the end, he's still saved, and it'll be, but it'll be with great weeping and, 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 and sorrow that he'll enter into the kingdom of God. But he will be saved because, Jesus says, salvation is mine. He's saying, you are not saved by your works, or you are not not saved because of your poor works. 
The gospel of Jesus says you are saved because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. That is the only reason that any of us are saved. The only difference is then the work we do on top of that. Will we get reward or will we experience the sorrow of loss? So you might say it like this. Jesus said like this. In Matthew 7, 6, throw that up. This is Sermon on the Mount stuff. So this is like Jesus 101. Jesus said it like this. I didn't say this, by the way. Jesus said this. I just want to make that so clear. Jesus said this. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. Jesus said that. What's he talking about? He's saying, listen, friends. There may come a time when you realize the work you're doing or the person that you're trying to help is no longer receptive or open. They don't want to be built up. They don't want to be a disciple of Jesus. And there comes a time where Jesus, Jesus says, spend your time elsewhere. Spend your energy elsewhere. Hope and pray that person changes their mind. You could ask them once a year, come back to them and say, hey, are you interested in being a disciple of Jesus? If they say no, say okay. If they say yes, then we're back at it. But Jesus says, don't throw your pearls to those who don't care. What are pearls? Precious stones. So, loss, reward, what will it be? And here's the excitement and the warning of if you do the work and you make disciples and you participate in churches that are founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ and they build up through the word, through things that last, here's the great excitement but also a warning. The excitement is, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple? How exciting is that? We are God's temple. And in the courtyard of the temple in Jerusalem, all people could come. People that weren't yet the people of God could come and see what the holiness of God looked like. That's what we get to become. We, as the local church, are the same now. Paul is saying, now, people, if they want to get a glimpse of who God is, they come near to his temple, the local church, and they get a glimpse of God's character, they get a glimpse of God's glory, they get a glimpse of God's love, and they get a glimpse of God's seriousness. What a great thing to get to be that place, which is why Paul will say in the, in the chapters to come, it's so important that we're united, that what we present to the world is not something other than what God is. His holiness is important because we are the temple and people come near to look at it even if from a distance. It's, it's important that we're united and we're not quarreling amongst ourselves because God is not quarrelsome. You see, is the heart of Christ modeled here? Is the heart of Christ visible here? We are now, as the people of God, the touchable body of the risen Savior. People want to know and touch, is Jesus real? They come near to his temple, the local church, and they'll find out. They might be like doubting Thomas, but they'll touch and they'll feel and they'll say, yes, this is real. This is the body of Christ. There's something powerful and real here. So we, as the local church, now, just like the temple in Jerusalem was, we become the closest that many people will ever get to heaven while on earth. That's crazy. The name Sedaris in the Latin means heavenly body. We are the heavenly body of Christ. So the people come near to us as the temple of God, they'll get a glimpse or a taste of heaven, of God's kingdom. That's what they should do, at least. How amazing is that? That people can come near to heaven now by coming near to his body, the local church, where his love and his peculiar wisdom are on full display, where they can engage in it, test it out, Touch it, feel it, feel like if it's solid and real and not like wood and straw and hay. It's an amazing, exciting promise. Do we take that seriously? Because here's what Paul says, as Paul always does. So much excitement and then a little bit of a warning. It's actually quite a big warning. Look what he says. If anyone destroys God's temple, that's the local church, God will destroy him. So there's actually three kinds of people in this passage. Those who are saved, who will experience great reward for the work they do. Those who are saved, who experience great loss because their life's work is shown to be temporary, not eternal. 
And then there's a third category, those who actually destroy, divide, tear down God's church. And God says, he'll destroy those people. A warning. A warning. And thank God for the warning. I don't want to be that kind of person. I hope you don't either. And I was reading um, a commentary by Paul Gardner this week, and he said, actually, what's so interesting about this idea, when we think about our church or any other church that we might be a part of um, in the future, he says, we need to rightly understand the letter of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And in the letter of Revelation, there's letters to the seven churches. And one, and the last letter in chapter 3 of the book of Revelation is to the church in Laodicea. And John, who wrote Revelation, wrote sort of messages to each as God uh, directed him. And there's a really famous line in the letter to the Laodiceans. And, and in it, you may have heard it, it says... See, I, this is Jesus, stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and be with him. Right? Have you heard this? This is a great, like as an evangelist, this is a great message. And if you've heard it, I might ruin it for you now. I don't think it's untrue that Jesus stands at the door and knocks on your heart. But he's speaking to what? A local church. A temple. So what is he talking about? In the context of that verse, I think this is what he's talking about. Because you know what he says to the Laodiceans? He says, you're rich. Just like you American churches. You're rich. He says, but you're neither hot or cold. You're lukewarm. And so when I see your lukewarm worship, I spit you out of my mouth. That's what he says right before. He says, I stand at the door and knock. What is he saying? He's saying... You are no longer the house of the living God. He's saying, I don't care how much money you have or influence you have. You are no longer the house. Because what? Because instead of me, Jesus says, standing in your midst, I'm standing outside. You locked me out of my house. And he's saying, let me back in. Otherwise, you will be destroyed. I pray that Sedaris Church never locks Jesus outside these doors. That Jesus never says, excuse me, can I get back in? You did it with your own wealth and your own money and your own influence and your own wisdom. And you kicked me out because I was too serious for it because I was talking about pearls. Let me back in. That that never happens to this church as we continue to grow in wisdom and strength. Even in, 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 in financial resources, those things aren't bad if we let Jesus be the center of what we do, that he never says to us, can I get back in? Let that never be true of Sedaris Church, my friends. I think that's all I have to say about that. Let's pray.